So uh, if you've been with us the last month or so, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. We're almost done. We're almost at the end of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians that is. And then we get into Romans next. That's the next thing after 1 Corinthians. It's between, it was actually written between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So uh, we'll get to one of our favorite books here in Levner, which is Romans here in a couple of weeks. But let's pick up where we left off. We left off talking about tongues, speaking in tongues, because he's literally in chapter 12 talked about the spiritual gifts of the body, how we've all been blessed with spiritual gifts. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was buried, rose again, sits by the Father, they sent the Spirit to live inside of us. There's a Spirit living inside of you believers And because of that, you've been giving a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift is used not to edify yourself, but to edify the church body, to build up those around you. Just as Kyle and Maddie did here this morning, just as Doug did here this morning. And so he talks about two different ones last week. One was to prophesy, to preach, to teach maybe even be prophetic. And that was to edify and to build up the church, but the speaking in the tongues, that was more to edify yourself. Unless it's used properly. I get it, the percentage of that is very minute compared to using it individually as your own private prayer time. I get it. But watch what he says when we get to the end of chapter 14, which is where we left off. We left off at verse 26. And I'll start there this morning. It says, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. Let me say this. He's not talking about Sunday morning. He's literally talking about throughout every day of their lives. It wasn't like they were by themselves and then they all gathered together on Sunday morning and had a worship time. They were together. They shared meals together. They worked together. They lived together. They did all these things. And literally, Paul's saying, when you're together... The purpose of you being together is to build up community. I will say this, as a pastor, uh, one of the things that I, and I'm assuming most pastors, have realized during this pandemic is you think Sundays are important because everybody comes together and sings. They call it worship time or whatever, but everybody comes together and sing. And then there's the presentation, there's the prophecy, the, the teaching, the discipleship, whatever you want to call it, which, okay, that, that's, there's an advantage to that. But what we've learned from this pandemic is the importance of being in the same room. You hear what I'm saying? Is that there's a necessity about seeing each other, touching one another, loving one another, speaking to one another face-to-face. There's something about a community which may be the most important part of the whole time here together. 
more than me teaching, more than us singing, is just being together. And that is what Paul is saying. Everything needs to build up one another. Verse 27, it says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, he's going back to one of the things that was most controversial. This is the whole purpose in him writing to the church is like there were issues that came up and he's gone through and he's talking about each one of these issues and trying to help them process it. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. He's literally laying out the instructions. If you're going to use tongues in a group setting, this is what it looks like. But even here, he doesn't rule out the use of speaking tongues altogether in public. He doesn't rule it out. So when we get to the end of the chapter, he's literally going to say, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So we have to be extraordinarily cautious, therefore, in our contemporary world to say, tongues was for in the past. It's not a current situation that we would use now. Some theologians will tell you that. But if it's practiced, it's not necessarily practiced and limited to a private context. Can an interpreter be there to interpret tongues? That's what Paul's saying. It can be done. It can be useful to the church to build up as long as there's interpreter there. Now, look, I grew up Southern Baptist and we were far, far away from speaking in tongues. It was considered taboo. It was considered something you just don't do. And you know what? If I'm going to sit here and read this passage of Scripture and it says tongues is okay, I believe it's okay. I believe that it can be used. I don't see myself doing it. I haven't ever asked to speak in tongues. Ask, who am I asking? I'm asking the Lord for that gift. But I've never received that gift, nor have I spent time worrying about it. So what Paul's literally doing right here in these next few verses, he's recognizing that no true gift of the Holy Spirit is ever given in a way that an individual cannot exercise control of it. If you're given a gift, you have the ability to control it. Watch what he says in verse 29. It says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophet's since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That's a huge statement right there. If there's a prophecy in the nature of a future prediction, which is what you typically know the word prophecy as, some kind of thinking into the future, casting something that's going to happen, we honestly need to wait to see if it comes to fruition. 
if we're to believe that. If it's an instruction for people today, pretty much like what we do here on Sunday morning, is what it is, is it teaching or commending consistent with biblical teaching elsewhere? Does it match up with the other teachings of the Bible? If what I'm teaching doesn't match up, then there is going to be a conversation. And we can never allow the so-called word of a Christian prophet, whether it's ordinary preaching or a spontaneous utterance, to trump what we know God is saying about His word. Literally what Paul is saying here is, whoever's prophesying, whoever's speaking in tongues, there has to be discernment. There has to be evaluation. I say this all the time up here. Don't believe a word that I say from this stage. Don't believe it. As a pastor, as a teacher, I'm telling you, don't believe what I'm saying. You can take what I'm saying and you can filter it through the Word of God and see if what I'm telling you is the truth. But for you to sit there and literally take every word that I say and make it something that is truth, without this, you're gravely mistaken. This is literally what Paul's saying to him. Whoever's speaking, who is ever up on stage, let it be evaluated, let it be heard with discernment. And this was typically done by the elders in the church. There have been times when I have taught and I've said something and I've been questioned by the elders of the church. And I've literally come back and said, hey, you know, in discussion, here's what was said last week, rethought it, misspoke, and tell you the truth. That happens all the time. I appreciate literally the people around me that uh, don't just take my word for granted, but they study the word, they've compared it, they've evaluated it, and they have no problem confronting me about it. It says here, we continue in verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, oh gosh, here we go, the woman should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. He's here we go. <laughs> yeah. All the guys said, hey, you got all these available seats. Why don't you put the women right up here up front? Just let them, yeah, that, that'll go over real well. Uh, just like this verse is going to go over real well. It, here's what I'm saying. is th- These two passages of Scripture, verses 34 and 35, theologians have like said, you know what, the manuscripts have shown, and some of them literally take those two verses and they place them at the end of the chapter because he's talking about speaking in tongues. Then he talks about women, and then he goes back to speaking in tongues, and it seems like it's out of place. Some people have done that. But I think it's perfectly fit right there in the middle of those two descriptions about speaking in tongues. Because literally what he's talking about is 
Go back to verse 33, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. There has to be order in the church meetings, and this is what he's talking about. When we come together, there has to be order in here. Granted, I, I think nowadays it's, it's totally different than what was happening here because it sounds like a bunch of people spoke. Whereas here and in today's churches, it's more formal, there's more of an agenda, there's more of a pastor, teacher, one person speaking, teaching. But here, there were multiple people teaching this. But think about this, if you go back what Paul had literally said previously, four chapters ago in chapter 11, he had already talked about the women wearing, remember this, wearing their covering over their heads as they pray and as they teach. So he's literally okay with women teaching and praying. But to who is the question? Who is the audience? That's the difference. Like, Maddie was up here singing. I have no problem with that whatsoever. We're in a little bit context, different context today, and people go, well, now you know the women are trying to equalize everything. And look, they were trying to do that back then. It's no different today. In fact, when he says, uh, as the law also says, there's no specific reference as to what that law is, but we believe it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, when the fall of man occurred, and it said that the woman would basically want to be head over the husband, but he would rule. He would rule. So you ask my beliefs, my opinion, my response. It would appear by reading the scripture that the major responsibility for doctrinal purity in the early church, it rested on the shoulders of men. The elders in particular. You go to 1 Timothy 2 when Paul writes Timothy a letter and he talks about the role of the elders. And it seemed, and, and, and don't write this off. Because you've taken two pieces of scripture right here and you've made this a big deal about women. When if you take the other 66 books, especially in the New Testament, some of the major characters in Jesus' ministry were women. They financed Jesus' ministry. Literally, the women did. It talks about deacons, Phoebe the deacon, and the role of women as deacons, which is a servant. Men and women serve this community. Don't take this one passage right here and say, women, you, you're really not important. Because that's the way that some of you are reading this. And that's not the truth at all. Literally what he's saying here is, I have a group of men around me, my elders, my guys that are important to me, that love me, that care about me, and they will process the word with me. They will help me interpret the word. When I interpret it wrong or say something wrong, they're going to be around to tell me that. And that's literally what he's saying. But also there, there's like chaos. Let's keep in context too, in those times, 
the more educated person were the men. They're the ones that went to the schools. Very rarely was it the woman because they stayed at home. That was the context. That's different than today. I get it. I totally understand it. So the right thing to do, what Paul's saying is like, women, if you have questions, the men should be spiritually responsible to answer your questions at home. They should know the teachings of Jesus so well that they can be at home and ask the man in their house. Therefore, there's not chaos in this room. There's not chaos. Like, if Michelle just all of a sudden piped up and asked a question and didn't include me in it, I, I mean, why, why wouldn't you ask me that? Why wouldn't you ask me? I don't know. I look at these two passages of Scripture, uh, and it probably seems like more likely it's some combination of privilege restricted to the elders as leaders of the church in conjunction with intrusive questions interrupting. Whatever the issue was, he's saying this is the best way to deal with it. But for us to sit here and think that women are not important, that women are not equal to men, that there's order. There's order in a family. There's order in the church. There's order in the military. There's order in a business. There's order to it. God is a God of order. And don't get mad at me for what the Bible says. In verse 36, it says this, Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? How am I able to speak each week? If this is me making a message up, seriously, look out. If I'm making this message up, you, you can be mad at me, but actually all I'm doing is reading the Word. I'm studying it in context of all 66 books and teaching what has been revealed to me. You have the ability to evaluate what I teach from this stage. But there's no reason to be mad at me. Verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. Once again, he comes back to the speaking in tongues as he closes out that chapter right there. And he says, prefer prophecy. If you're going to do anything, stick to the discipleship, stick to the teaching. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but let everything be done decently and in order. Let there be order in this room. And to whatever degree there still is some tension, as there are times in this world right here, between the non-charismatic and the charismatic world, these closing verses right here in chapter 14 speak very clearly to the non-charismatics. Don't exclude any spiritual gift. But to the charismatics is, don't see how wild you can get. He's literally saying, do everything decently 
and in order. That's it. That's how to do church. Then he jumps into chapter 15, and we totally change subjects now. Now we're talking about the resurrection. Let me read to you verse 1. It says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you have, are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain... For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Listen to this. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. That, my friends, right there, is our creed that all believers in Christ believe right there. You've heard me say it all at the very beginning. If you believe these things, that Jesus is the Son of God, He died for our sins, He's buried, He raised again, and He's sitting there at the right hand of the Father. If you believe that, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you've said a prayer, doesn't matter if you've come forward at an invitation, doesn't matter if you've been baptized, it's a matter of whether you believe that or not. That's the creed. And then uh, he's trying to explain to them about resurrection because most of the Jews believed in resurrection except those of the Sadducees. They didn't believe there was an afterlife. And so he's teaching now this resurrection, what happens to the soul and spirit and the eternal. It's like, I know you guys have watched over Christmas the movie Soul that Disney put out, the little cartoon or whatever, and we watched it at our house. Good entertainment, but are you kidding me? <laughs> when they died and the souls were on a conveyor belt that went up to this big bug zapper in the sky and just evaporated, that was what we're teaching our kids? Like, there is an afterlife, there is an afterlife, and this is literally what Paul's saying, is if you believe in this creed, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that's what saves you. You have eternal life. Watch what he says in verse 6. It says, Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Jesus died, buried, rose again, and he appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, he's saying, but some have fallen asleep. If Jesus died in 30, some believe 33 AD, and Paul's writing this letter in 50, we're talking about somewhere between 17 and 20 years earlier, Jesus had died, appeared for 40 days to the people as a resurrected body. And now in those 17 to 20 years, some of those 500 people have died, but a lot of them are still around talking and giving testimony of we saw him after he was dead. We know that he died. We know that he was buried. We know that he rose again. And we literally saw him talk to him. We saw it with our own eyes. The 500 brethren probably all saw him at the same time so it could not have been hallucination or deception. Have you ever heard of the word mass hallucination? It's occurred a number of times throughout history, but always in conjunction with a place or some kind of visible thing or 
physical element of some sort, a statue of a person perhaps, or a painting, or an icon, or a holy shrine, you know what I'm talking about. But there was nothing in common about the locations or the context of Jesus appearing, not only to the 500, but it says to Cephas, and then to the apostles. These were all at different places. It wasn't just one occasion or one place. There was nothing in common with mass hallucination. And this event took place right before his ascension. And then it says, he appeared to me, to Paul. This probably happened two or three years after Jesus was crucified, rose again and appeared to the 500 and the apostles. But he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in his conversion experience. Verse 9, it says, For I am the least of the apostles. The apostles were those that hung out with Jesus here on earth, that they learned from him. That would be the disciples. They were the apostles. Your disciples, they were apostles. But Paul's literally calling himself an apostle because Jesus appeared to him and revealed to him all the teachings that he had given to the apostles. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That, that right there is an important verse. Because I'm going to teach you a little thing about identity right here. When you get to the point of conversion, Jesus dying, the Spirit coming inside of you, 2 Corinthians 5.17, old things have passed away, you are now a new creation. You are now a new creation. There's no time after the Gospels that the Bible ever refers to you as a sinner. There's no time after the Gospels that the Bible ever refers to you as believers, as sinners. Yet, just like that two passages of Scripture about women, everybody makes a big deal about Paul again in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. Paul referred to himself as a sinner. And we take that one verse right there and we say, well, if Paul's calling himself the worst of sinners, then we're all sinners and we should all be labeled sinners. But let's go back. What does he say in verse 9? He says, I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, what Paul is referring to, and I believe in in 1 Timothy, is this. Is before his conversion experience and before his transformation, he was a Jew, and anybody that believed in Jesus, he wanted to kill him. He literally killed him. He persecuted Christians. Like, how bad can you get of all the sins in the world? Paul's saying, this is the worst. I had Christians killed because they believe in Jesus. Then Paul had this road to Damascus experience, his conversion experience, and old things passed away. He's transformed and he's made a new creation. 
and he never refers to himself as a sinner again. So therefore, my friends in this room, never refer to yourself as a sinner. You once were a sinner, but once you believed in Jesus, you became a new creation, holy, righteous, and redeemed. You still sin. I get it. You still sin. I still sin. I get it. But that is not my true identity. What you see right here is a holy, righteous, redeemed man. Not because of anything that I did, but because of what Jesus did. He was crucified, buried, rose again, and made me a new creation. And I walk in that identity. If you, if you believe for one minute that you're a sinner, that I do all these terrible things, and that's my identity, one, why don't you just wear that name tag, whatever your sin is. If that's what you want to claim, why don't you just put that sin right across your chest and wear that around? You don't want to do it. Because that's not who you are. Sure, you struggle with the flesh. Sure, you still sin. Sure, you still make mistakes. I get it. But if I can walk around knowing that he died one time on the cross for all my sins, that he forgave me of all my sins long ago before I ever even did them, everything that I've done, everything that I'm doing, and everything that I'm going to do, he already dealt with. All right? Are you with me? I can walk around here victorious as a Christian. If I call myself a sinner and I dwell on my sin, Lord, help me with my sin, help me overcome my sin, Lord, I'm such a... You walk around here as a defeated Christian and nobody wants any of that. But if I know what he did and that he made me whole, he redeemed me, he doesn't call me a sinner. He calls me his child of God. He loves me. He cares about me. And I walk around, I walk around here different than most other believers. Doesn't make me better. I'm not better. I just live a different life. I can walk around victorious even when I'm in the midst of making a wrong choice. Even when I'm in the middle of it, he's still smiling on me. He still loves me. He still cares about me. He watches over me. He protects me. <laughs> I'm the least of them, Paul says. He's talking about his old life. Verse 10, it says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I believe what he tells me. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I knew the law, I obeyed the law, I taught the law, and it didn't work, but God's grace made me whole and complete. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. He literally acknowledges his unworthiness even to be in the recipient of this gracious. Three times he talks about it. Three times receiving this graciousness from God. Whether it was they or I, we preach the same gospel. It's the gospel that you believed. The bodily resurrection is central to it all. Jesus raised from the dead. Believe in resurrection. Verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, because that's what the Romans believed. They believed that there was no afterlife. They believed about that big bug zapper in the sky. There's no afterlife. And Paul's like, yes, there is, because Jesus has already proved it. And if it happens with Jesus, then it's going to happen with us. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you got nothing. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised Christ up, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. (laughs) He's saying this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came here, his blood was poured out, he was crucified, buried, and rose again, you got nothing. You're going to put your hope in something else. I've seen it all week long, and you've seen it too. Everybody's putting their hope in 2021. Everybody's putting their hope in a vaccine. Everybody's putting hope in a new year. Good luck with that. You think it's really going to change on January 1? Really? If you're putting your hope in the future calendar rather than Jesus Christ, good luck with that. The only hope that we have is what you said, David, putting our hope in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all I got. That's what he's saying. The perspective of 2020 is different for those who stay focused on the resurrection of Christ and the eternal abundant life that is afforded to us. You can see 2020 as a great dumpster fire. I get it. But if that's it, it's based upon the situation, it's based and not based upon Christ, you totally missed out on last year. I get it. It's easy, it's easy to put our hope in things around us. But there's people there's people in this room that are hurting because of things that happened this past year. I get it. I get it. I hurt with you. I grieve with you. Some of you are looking at 2021 going, it's not going to be any better. Paul's literally saying, you have to stay focused. You have to stay focused. This is temporary. This is temporary. This is temporary. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. If it's anything else, it's worthless. Verse 20, we're closing up here. Verse 20, 
But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, once you see the first fruits of crops, you know that there's going to be plenty more to come. Even if not instantly, there's going to be more to come. And there's, Paul's saying Jesus is the, the first fruits. He died and he rose again. You can expect more. That's what Paul's saying about Christ's resurrection compared to others. Verse 21, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. The death came through a man, that was Adam. For just as in Adam all die, because Adam sinned in the garden, death entered into the world. You see, creation was never intended to die. But once Adam sinned, all of a sudden death came in. And for everybody in this room, we will experience it. We will experience it. But watch what he says. There's hope. There's hope. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Because we are in Christ, we are made alive for eternity. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. All that we talked about. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. You guys, there's going to be a point when we're, where there's no more death around. We've literally lived through it this year. Death all around us. I've done more funerals this year than I've ever done. There's going to be a day when there's no more crying and no more dying. For God has put everything under His feet. Now when it says everything is put under Him, it is obvious that He who puts everything under Him is the exception. Watch this, watch this. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subject to the One who subjected everything to Him, so that God may be all in all. Did you hear that? We talk about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But even inside that trinity, there's submission. There's submission. There's a functional subordination of the Son and the Spirit to God. The Father never proceeds from the Son, proceeds from the Son or the Spirit. He never proceeds from Him. The Son and the Spirit never command or send God the Father to do anything. There's subordination there. There is order there. There's not chaos. But God rightly commands and sends the Son and the Spirit to do things. You see, God is God. Jesus is His Son. And the Spirit completes the Trinity. But there is even order there, and that's all Paul's saying. There's order to this, there's a resurrection, there's belief, and there's hope. There's hope for you. Don't put it in 2021. Put it in Jesus. Our Father, I... I pray for peace in this room right now.
because there is hurt. And may your word just ring true to all of us right now. May what we read, may what we heard today, may what we study this week keep us focused on eternity, keep us focused on you, our relationship with you. Because otherwise, it's hard to get through this day. But with you, all things are possible. We can literally, as Paul says, count it all joy. Huh. Count it all joy. I trust you, Lord, with my friends here. Those that are struggling. uh, Those that have a hard time just staying focused. That you would heal them. That you would encourage them. That you would lift their heads up. Let them walk victoriously because of all that you've done in their life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.